0: A-P-U. American Public University is proud to present Exploring STEM. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Deal. Today, we're talking about manned exploration of the solar system. My guest today is Dr. Ramses Ramirez. Ramsey's is a new professor with a planetary sciences group at the University of Central Florida Department of Physics. Ramsey's eclectic background includes a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from Georgia Tech, a master's degree in planetary geology from ASU, and a PhD in geosciences and astrobiology from Penn State University. He worked as a postdoc at Cornell University before completing his last position as a research scientist at the Earth Life Science Institute in Tokyo. Ramsey, thank you for being our guest today.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Gary. I'm glad to be here.
0: Likewise. Well, I really appreciate it. Your background is extremely diverse. It sounds like you had a lot of really interesting experiences traveling the world and in your profession of study. So in full disclosure to our listeners, we know each other through our work mutually at UCF. And uh, specifically, I reached out to you to help me recently with a conference presentation where I was speaking about sort of a comparative analysis of colonization in the long-term of Venus versus Mars. And we had talked at length about that. And I thought this would be a, a great opportunity to segue into a podcast to talk a little bit about the very first steps that we might make, literal and figurative, in terms of manned space exploration in the solar system. So I guess before we get there, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, what you've focused on in your studies and what you're bringing to bear on this conversation?
1: Yeah, I'd be I'd love to. I'm a UCF. I'm a planetary scientist. and my background, I'm I'm basically an atmospheric scientist, really into planets in our solar system beyond. I'm a mostly a climate modeler, atmospheric scientist that uses uh, specialized climate modeling programs, like the ones that a lot of organizations use for climate change. Uh, I use those types of programs to run simulations on the climates of planets in our solar system, like not just Earth, but mars venus and exoplanets in our solar system i've been very heavily invested in mars and trying to understand the early climate on mars because the martian surface is basically uh, looks like it was a lot more earth-like in the past i mean this is in contrast to what it is like now i mean it's pretty much a barren desert Uh, i mean there's some cool things and there's the poles and whatnot, and there's some water ice possibly underneath and, and the surface and subsurface lake in the South Pole. There's a lot of interesting things on Mars, including organics and uh, possible signs of life there. But in the past, about four billion years ago, Mars was a much more uh, potentially Earth-like world with geologic evidence, with rivers and seas and possible oceans and a thick atmosphere that enveloped the planet. We think that Mars, you know, at least the geologists and the geology all point to that direction, that Mars was a very different world in the past. It could have been Earth-like. If it was Earth-like with oceans and, and rivers and seas, it may have had life. So a lot of my work is trying to understand, unravel the mysteries behind Mars, how Mars could have been this more Earth-like world. What would have made it that way? What happened to it since? How did it become so different? What made it lose its atmosphere? What made it lose its habitability? From with that, I'm also interested in Venus and trying to understand also, because I'm interested in all, basically all the planets in our solar system and beyond exoplanets as well that, that have atmospheres that are potentially habitable. So rocky worlds like the Earth, Mars, Venus, that have atmospheres, Titan even. For Venus, my interest is trying to understand how the heck did it turn out to be the way it did? It's, it's close to Earth-sized, yet it's basically very hot. Temperature's hot enough to melt lead on the surface. And it's not very habitable there. I mean, we don't think there's life as we know it on the surface there. It's at least the way it is on the earth. And so we're trying to understand, or my work tries to unravel why Venus turned out the way it did compared to the earth. And then taking these lessons that we learned from our solar system and applying them to exoplanets and understanding through the habitable zone concept that I helped develop over the past several years and expand try to understand then what exoplanets could be more Earth-like based on our solar system knowledge and and observations, astronomical observations, try to determine which planets are the most likely to be habitable based on that knowledge. And hopefully my models and programs can inform observers and vice versa. They can tell me, hey, these plants are interesting, but we don't know what the observations mean. Can you tell us? Can your models explain what this all means? Is there life on these worlds or not or, or potential... Habitability or so, these are the types of questions I'm really interested in. You know, in terms of manned exploration, I think we want to send humans to Mars. I definitely in that camp that uh, the solar system is ours for the taking, basically, and uh, we should send humans to other planets uh, for first for scientific missions, but hopefully, I mean, eventually, we want to send a colony there and put bases and. Uh, maybe in the very far future, Terraform, who knows something and, and beyond. But uh, certainly the first steps would be send humans there, make sure that we can do that. We've done that already on the Moon. We have sent people there. We want to send people there again. But really interested is in the potentially habitable planets like Mars and other worlds that, um, you know, and maybe even Venus is something that at least we can sustain a human presence
0: on. Perfect. I didn't realize you had as much of an eclectic background as you apparently did, but that that's really interesting. If you'll permit me, I, I wanted to ask you a question or two, and I'm going to tie this into Venus eventually, if you'll let me get there by way of a, a long segue. But as a climate scientist, I guess first to set the stage to something that many people hear about in the news here and are quite familiar with, but in an attempt to try to inoculate some of the general population who may listen to this from bad and or stupid ideas, from the perspective of a planetary scientist, not necessarily a politician or a weather reporter, but is there any controversy from what you know about it at this point with respect to A, climate change is happening, B, it's largely human-induced here on planet Earth, and C, it's a problem that we need to worry about from a policy perspective, not talking about Armageddon, but at least something that it could have wide-ranging implications. Is there anything controversial about those three premises that I just offered forth in terms of the scientific research that you've seen, worked with, and been a part of? From my perspective, CO2 is certainly a greenhouse gas.
1: Some misinformation about CO2 not being a greenhouse gas, that it can't warm planets, you know, it does. We've had the experiments and the models that also coincide with the experiments We do know that CO2 has a strong impact on the atmosphere and it can warm planets in sufficiently high doses. Now, like in all these cases, it's a complicated problem. It's not just about putting CO2 in the atmosphere of planets, but you have to worry about other things, other factors, clouds, you know, there's these negative feedbacks, vegetation feedbacks that draw down CO2. So even if you're putting CO2, you can draw some of it down and that will mitigate the effects of warming a bit. There's clouds that can further worsen the effects of the warming or, or counteract it. So from my perspective, CO2 is a very good, decent greenhouse gas that warms planets, including the Earth. And it's you know, that part I think, is not not very controversial from my perspective. just pure science that's just the case. I'm not going to give any political recommendations or anything like that on policy. I'm just going to say that, yes, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It warms planets. Warm the earth, but you also have to take into account all of the, the big picture and all of the factors as to how big of an impact it is. And that's still something, even among the models, they you know exactly how much warming CO2 can do is still something that is being figured out as we speak. Some models are more extreme than others. I don't use those types of models that assess climate change on the earth, but mines are tailored more for other planets, so the questions I ask and the questions i want to answer and uh, are different because i'm more interested in like very long-term effects and things that happened in the past so my my expertise is in uh, paleoclimates of planets so at least in my view and also you know these long-term geochemical cycles like the carbonate silicate cycle that we think has kept co2 in balance over time on the earth and potentially other habitable planets it's uh so we it makes sure that co2 levels never get too high or too low very long billion year time scale. so that's why we've never i mean we've if we go into a frozen state as a planet on earth we eventually come out of it because of volcanism and co2 will raise temperatures again and vice versa if things start to get hot then There are negative feedbacks, again, as I mentioned before, these feedbacks that then tend to mitigate the positive response and bring things back to the mean or baseline.
0: So I'm glad you mentioned extremes and long-term timelines for these things, because that's where I wanted to make the connection to Venus in this conversation. So as you and I have discussed privately before, Venus has been described as a twin planet to Earth in terms of its very close approximate mass. And obviously it happens to be near us, relatively speaking, in the solar system, and yet it could not be more different it seems in terms of ground conditions in the sense that venus has the armageddon-like greenhouse effect going on with 900 degree surface temperatures that's what i wanted to ask to sort of bring a sense of familiarity or, or a sense of relational comparison for listeners to what we have here on earth because again and i'm not intending to be political with the climate change point at all but we have some discussion about that taking place right now and the science in terms of as you mentioned models some are more extreme than others but I'm not aware of any model on the Earth in terms of the worst case scenarios that would ever render our Earth to be Venus-like in terms of its runaway greenhouse effect. Is that a fair or safe assumption, or is there a doomsday scenario in which we could look like Venus and we'd all be cooked in a pizza oven? <laughs> so that's a great point. This is actually a, a problem that as a
1: PhD student, I had also assessed. My advisor at the time was very interested in this problem. And like. you just basically put as much co2 as you can possible on the planet up to venus-like levels of co2 90 or 100 bars can you actually trigger runaway greenhouse just hypothetically speaking and it turns out it's extremely hard to do so well it, it turns out with the levels of co2 we have on the earth maybe i don't know 10 or 20 times what's in the present atmosphere you know if we're taking a very standard estimate of maybe the total amount of CO2 that there could be locked up within the interior and just put it all in the atmosphere, that would not be enough to trigger a runaway, although it would be very bad for life. You wouldn't be worried about a runaway, but you'd be worried about lots of other things, like just being too hot for things to be comfortably uh, habitable. So it would still be very catastrophic. You'd have all these other issues. But runaway, it's week week can come in that paper, we were able to just about almost get to a runaway greenhouse, but not quite. There's another study from a colleague of mine that Colin Goldblatt who got a runaway that so we wrote a paper response to that. He barely got the runaway and we barely did not get it. So it's still an open question because I think it also depends on clouds and Again, these feedbacks I had mentioned about clouds being possibly worsening the situation or bettering it, you can have clouds that cool the climate if they're low, but if they're high, then they tend to help warm the climate even more and intensify the warming. So, you know, these things can make things complicated, but in our result, even with the clouds, we found it was very, not good for life, but <laughs> it's still at 400 50K or whatever, it's still, you wouldn't be alive, but you wouldn't reach the traditional definition of a runaway greenhouse, at least the way we define it in that paper, no. It helps that the Earth is a bit farther away from the Sun than Venus is, I mean, it's quite a bit farther. Venus gets nearly twice as much radiation as the Earth, so that difference might be the reason why we don't get a true runaway like you would on Venus.
0: That makes sense. And that's, I mean, somewhat comforting in the sense that, you know, obviously we're worried about the effects of climate change over the long term here insofar as they might get bad in the sense of rising sea levels and storms and whatnot. But it sounds like if we at least continue our trajectory that we're on of renewable resources and ending the dependence on fossil fuels, that if we can get away from the human technologies that are presumed by most experts today to be responsible for the exponential increase in carbon in recent years, that that Should help abate worst case scenarios and we won't in fact end up being a a second venus so that's that's good to know well shifting back to our original intent for today which was to talk about exploration with humans of the solar system you brought up the moon in part of your discussion earlier and I, i wanted to ask that because it's been proposed by some as the proper sort of springboard the stepping point by which we might make our next jump to either mars or venus or wherever we end up going And I was just curious to know your thoughts on that because I've heard arguments that suggest it's a good training ground, that it establishes working technologies that would help us kind of work the bugs out closer to home. And then others who say that the conditions on the moon are so different from anything we might encounter on Mars or Venus or anywhere else that it's not going to be a comparable or useful analogy to anything we would see elsewhere and therefore we'd be wasting our time. So do you have an opinion on that? Thanks for asking that question, Gary. That's actually something I've thought about quite a bit. About three years ago,
1: I wrote a little uh, commentary to, to Scientific American on this very topic called Forget the Moon. It's time to commit human exploration to Mars. And there it's, you know, it's it's kind of tongue in cheek, but certainly if we decide to go to the moon, that's fine by me. But it's just as a preference of mine, it would be nice to go to, to Mars, I think. I think partially because we've done it before, We've done it as a species. We've gone to the moon, and now we need new material. But secondly, it's really, I think, you know, the public fascination with Mars is just much greater. So in terms of excitement and getting people roused up about The science and the prospects and the astrobiological means and just talking about even colonization, things like that. There's just a lot more in sci-fi, in movies, in books about the prospects of Mars. It's just a lot more romantic target, which is important, I think, because I think where this all lacks is political will. You eventually need to convince stakeholders, political stakeholders, to colonize to go somewhere it's, it's hard enough to get money from the federal government to fund these things so it has to be something that the public is excited about that the politicians see nice gains for and i just think overall even though moon is certainly closer and easier to get to that the rewards both from a public's imagination and also scientific are just greater from ours so this is Kind of like what i argued in that scientific american article that's my personal take but again i'm not
0: anti-moon at all we've been speaking with dr ramses ramirez about manned exploration of the solar system we'll be right back after a short break at american public university we believe quality education must be more affordable that's why, as a leader in online higher education, we focus on minimizing costs and maximizing return on learner investment. And we believe higher education must be more accessible. So our online programs start every month. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back. We've been speaking today with Dr. Ramsey's Ramirez about manned exploration of the solar system. I'm wondering if you think we're still trapped in a false sense of timeline for all of this, whether we go back to the moon or we go to Mars. Obviously, visionaries like Elon Musk have talked about using his private company to go there in the next few years. And I think about it in the context of the original moon landings and the race to the moon against the Soviets. And then we got there and everyone imagined you know, in the American culture and frankly around the world to a large extent that the space would be our new backyard. We'd be there all the time in mass with major industries. The moon would have hotels and places to play and and stay and and eat and you know do all the things that we would do here. That for people from the 1960s and 70s to imagine that we'd be having a conversation in 2021 where we'd never been back to the moon after the Apollo missions, I think they'd think we were crazy if we went back and said that. You know, given the appetite for it and the interest. And just the sort of logical, okay, if this, then that. So I'm wondering if you think, looking at the historical context, we're all being a little bit delusional or overly optimistic about how soon, whether we go back to the moon or we go to Mars. And I agree with you about the cultural appetite that people have for going to Mars. It's something new. And even if you weren't alive for the moon landings, you know that we were there. But I just wonder if we're discounting how far we really were from the mark when it came to what actually transpired in the decades ahead what do you see for the next 10 20 30 years
1: yeah so I uh, yeah, it's all difficult questions I, I I do think it's been a while since we've been to the moon I mean it's certainly it's been a while it's been uh, you know like 1974 I think and so it's been a quite a long time and it' it has we have been out of practice and you would think yeah based on all of that all that Momentum that we used to have, coming from the the Cold War and the space race between the U.S. and the Russians, that we would be at Proxima Centauri by now, the way that the pace we were going, and it's just kind of depressing that, in many ways, why we're, we're not further along than we are. So you know, we have to get back into it, and I do think that it does look like to me that you know the moon might be the first target. There's still a you know, I, I understand their arguments that we don't understand radiation that well. We need to do more work on that and Mars is far away and the moon is closer and that's all good. I don't really care as long as we go and go somewhere and then we'll eventually we'll go to the Mars, whether it's first or second. And these other places, Venus and uh, who knows what else. But I do think in the next 10 or 20 years, we will be hopefully going to sending humans to, to the moon again. I think that from that perspective, people think that might get our spirits up for a bit. And I mean, there'll be nice benefits we'll get from them. Maybe our morale will go up and that'll increase the appetite even further to, to go to Mars. So that's the, the eventual goal, at least for me or and maybe other places like Venus, these uh, balloons to Venus and other things uh, that people have. So um, I see it either way. We have to go somewhere. I mean, going to the moon, choice is better than, not doing anything at all just hanging around in earth orbit like we've been doing for the past several decades so um something needs to change
0: i agree do you have an opinion on the public versus private sector there's a lot of debate about whether again the visionaries like musk or bezos or branson branson seems inclined to focus on sort of low earth orbit tourism but the others haven't put such restrictions on themselves or the future of their companies but then you have all the national space agencies and people argue that they're too bureaucratic there's too much red tape and they're too bloated to ever accomplish anything and and the timelines for political appointments don't allow for you know the length of space missions that are 10 or 20 years in development to withstand the changes of political winds with republicans and democrats in congress and in the white house for example here in the united states and elsewhere around the world it's it's similar. So I I know that our focus for today was more on the science, but I'm just curious to know if you have any view on whether, on which you think, you know, where would you put your money? We'll get there first. Um, As far as like the private or public, I do think NASA will
1: always have a major role in in things, but I do really, I am very heartened to see the 20 years ago or so, I would have never dreamed that the private sector would have such a a big role and yet space tourism and now, these visionaries that you've mentioned that are trying to go, Musk, Bezos, and others that are trying to go to the moon and Mars, and uh, there's even private space companies that are already uh, working on you know, all sorts of equipment for these proposed lunar and Mars missions, which is wonderful, something I never had dreamed of. And I think there's a lot of momentum in the private sector. Well, NASA's always been kind of conservative on this, and there's always been these big missions, say, uh Bob Zubrin's uh, plan to go to Mars, uh, the case for Mars, and sent humans there. These types of ideas have been hard to, to accept by NASA because the human risk and whatnot, you know, the lack of political will maybe, but they're also expensive. You know, I think uh, something like NASA would require a lot of redundancy to get a mission like that going and would have a much higher price tag. So my bet, I think you can do it more cheaply through the private sector, and I think I like the momentum am seeing right now. And someone like Musk or Bezos, I think, you know, they have enough money to, to pull something off. I mean, they, they might have to coordinate with NASA or someone for mission operations and things like that, getting a launch pad. But I think, you know, maybe the solution is kind of a joint effort. So maybe the private company is doing the actual sending the, the rocket there, the the mission planning, but then all the logistical operational stuff. A lot of that might be taken up by NASA or JPL or someone. So that might be the, the direction. I don't think it's going to be a, an all NASA or an all private sector effort. It'll be a combined effort.
0: I think you're right, and that that would be nice. The, the major objections that I've heard come from past views on this and looking at you know reasons why private sector might not do it is sort of the handcuffed nature of corporations to the bottom line and particularly if they're publicly held then you've got shareholders that are interested in their return on investment and not necessarily on risk taking or precedent setting or exploration for exploration's sake but it seems that there's enough wealth concentrated in people who are interested in this and musk being one of them who's so far kept his company spacex private I don't know how long that will last or if there will ever be a need for him to go public to raise capital. They seem to be doing pretty well so far, but insofar as he keeps it close to the vest, he makes all the shots and or calls all the shots, I should say. He's not beholden to anybody else's interests or directions for the company, and, and he's stated pretty unequivocally that his mission is to make human beings a multiplanetary species, notwithstanding... And how much money he makes he just traded places again with Bezos like last week for richest person in the world so I think he's uh, <laughs> I think he's doing fine there um, but it seems he has more aspirational goals than just raising the stakes of his bank account so let's hope so because it seems to be working now you mentioned Zubrin's mission plan for Mars and I'm familiar with it and just getting back to the science for a second. Is it as simple as Zubrin makes it out to be? Is he leaving some key details out? But when we talk about going to Mars in terms of the challenges, I know you mentioned radiation a few minutes ago, and that's obviously a concern in transit. But is that the hardest problem we need to solve? Or are there things that we haven't really thought about well enough? We we seem to be doing pretty well with Curiosity and Perseverance rovers. I was impressed and, and pleasantly surprised to see that they both landed successfully, notwithstanding the technical complexity of their... EDL sequence, the entry, descent, and landing, and how much that relies on perfect timing with things like parachutes and retro rockets and tether cables and cranes and all this crazy stuff. So I'm cautiously optimistic for us to do it, but is it going to get a lot harder when it comes to sending human beings down there, or are we just sort of honing in on perfection or the process?
1: As far as going to Mars and the difficulties there, I'm a fan of Bob Zubrin. I think he's quite a visionary and he has great ideas. Of course, you could say he's overly optimistic, or whatever, or just very positive. So, there are things we don't quite know about Mars, so that we don't really know. I think the his Sabatier reactions and, and you know, being able to live off the land and create basically get rocket fuel and water and things and um, extracting materials from Mars. I I think that's all, you know, valid stuff. It's been shown to work. It's it's a common reaction. I think there's no issue there. I think uh, some of the, his ideas to, to make the missions cheaper also seem realistic. But there are a couple of things I'm a little bit concerned about. I and mean, there's always negatives. But it's a cool plan overall, but uh, just a couple of caveats is the psychological element. I mean, you're sending people to across space for however many months, six, seven, eight months to, to go to Mars. And... So they have to be kept pretty happy there. Um, There's the the radiation, the cosmic rays and things from the sun that you need to protect them with. And so um, yeah, I think we do have the means to protect them, but maybe the stakes are too high for anyone to try yet. I think it's possible. I think the biggest problem is the idea that we, for us, I think, well, we can go there. I think it is potentially possible to send humans there and have some sort of makeshift colony, a science colony there, um, with pressure suits or something, and um, you know proper radiation protection. I do think we we know almost enough to do that. There's you know we just have haven't been, had the willpower to do it yet, or we're, we're too, too scared to do it. But for the long term presence, I think that's the problem. There's papers out there about how much CO2 there is on Mars and the atmosphere, I mean, in, in, in the surface. I mean, the idea is to somehow dredge up all the CO2 one way or the other and get into the atmosphere and warm it up and you can then get this potentially habitable world. I calculated basically even on present day, you need a bar of CO2 to get temperatures warm enough on Mars today. And it's not clear that we have that much CO2 saved up in the subsurface. So even if you include the surface soils and, or at least, you know, with our present day technology, the near surface CO2 and the caps and all these other locations, it looks like we have a lot less CO2 than that. So if there is more CO2 enough to completely make it terraformable, then you would have to go much deeper down, you know, kilometers deep and get all this CO2 from somewhere deep down. Um, And we just don't have the present day technology of of that. So there's that skepticism. I'm a bit skeptical of that because of that. I'm not sure, you know, that's a big question. We don't know if there's enough CO2 still saved in the subsurface for like a long-term habitation, especially since we think that a lot of it was lost to space. There's good reason to believe based on models like mine and other models, other climate models, atmospheric escape models of calculated this that mars could have started out with a lot of co2 like venus did and earth did in earth's case most of the co2 went deep down to the subsurface and just a little bit on the atmosphere and venus is reverse; everything stayed in the atmosphere in mars's case it's just so small that it would have lost a lot of that co2 that it had in the atmosphere if it had 10 bars or so a lot of it would have been lost to space At least that's the prediction. So that's a major problem. So it's not clear exactly how much CO2 is in the surface, in the subsurface of Mars, and whether we have enough to actually terraform the planet. Um, But at least, you know, for short-term things, short-term stays, I think, you know, I think we can do it with some caution. If we we just get a little brave, we can do it.
0: Perfect. Well, there's a lot to unpack and a lot to uh, consider in terms of challenges, but also opportunities. And I agree with you. I, I don't think there's anything that's outside the scope of our ability to innovate and intuit around, but uh, it certainly takes a lot of work and genius to get through these problems and make it a reality. So hopefully we see that. I'd like to have you back at some time, I know we're at our time now, but I'd love to have you back on to talk more about these subjects and hopefully dig a little deeper. We can talk more about the work we did with Venus and and sort of a comparative analysis and probe a little bit further into these technical questions of challenges. But before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to share with us today or uh, anything you wanted to send out to the listeners? I just want to say that these planets are very fun and interesting, and
1: Venus is another interesting planet. As Gary said, you know, there's a nice little debate about uh, whether we should go to the Moon or Mars first, but also I think we should add Venus in the mix, because uh, there's interesting ideas there about going to the upper atmosphere of Venus and uh, having humans maybe stay there. Maybe some of the challenges that we have on Mars would not be necessarily a big problem on Venus. I don't know. so. Uh, it's
0: definitely worth considering absolutely and i'm going to make that a topic for our next episode together at some point because i know we talked a lot about it for the conference and uh, i think the listeners would find it interesting so very good well ramses i want to thank you for sharing your expertise and perspectives on these topics today and thanks for joining me you're welcome
1: it was a pleasure Gary.
0: and thank you to our listeners for joining us you can learn more about these topics by visiting the various american public university blogs and podcasts be well and stay safe everyone For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU. American Public University.